For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Sports opinions with a side of satire. We're the first in tens, a weekly show delivering the spiciest opinions on football, life, and especially each other. And we can do that because we've been best friends for so long. I'm Amy. And I'm Jasmine. First in tens will bring you sports from the female perspective while also injecting pop culture, fashion, and music into our daring dialogue. We're saucy, edgy, and most of all, we we think think we're we're funny funny AF. First in tens, light on stats, heavy on sass. Follow us at firstintenspodcast.com. Hey there, Fangirl Nation. You are listening to Fangirl Sports Network's Get My Job podcast. I am your host, Tracy Sandler, and I could not be more excited about this week's episode as I'm joined by ESPN personality, Sarah Spain. From writing to podcast to radio to TV, Sarah talks about her greatest learning curve among the platforms. She talks about presenting confidence while knowing it's okay not to know it all. Sarah also explains why she has no problem making people uncomfortable and discusses that while the ceiling has gotten higher for women in sports, the bottom is still the same, which is something that needs to change. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Fangirl Sports Network. There's so much to learn in this one, so let's get to it. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. We are so happy to have you. Uh, I'm, I'm such a fan of yours and obviously been following your career closely and as we'll talk about later, following very closely everything you're doing around social justice and um, you're just very much an inspiration. So, so excited to talk today. Oh, that's nice. Uh, well, well, thank you for doing what you do. So there you <laughs> go. There's our love fest at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> um, well, let's just let's just jump right in. From Spain and Company to That's What She Said podcast to ESPNW to TV, you've you've hit pretty much every platform, which is amazing. Where would you say you found the greatest learning curve? Oh, that's a good question because people usually ask me which is my favorite and then I give them a long-winded answer that involves the things I like about all of them instead of actually (laughs) telling them a favorite because it depends (laughs) on the day and the moment. Um, Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I would say probably radio. Um, You know, obviously... I can pinpoint ways that I look back at early television or writing or podcasting. And I say, wow, you've come a long way. Uh, You (laughs) thought you knew what you were doing. You really didn't. Uh, Lucky for you, you were on a small enough platform that not that many people saw you when you were figuring it out. Um, But I would say radio seems the most simple, right? There's fewer elements. I mean, with TV for me, it's the logistics. So every time I start a new show, the nerves aren't Am I capable of doing this? Do I have something to say? Do I have opinions to give? It's always, what camera do I look at? Who's the producer and when are they calling me? What kind of meetings do we have? What kind of chair am I sitting in? Right? Like, can you see my feet? Should I wear cute shoes? Like dumb stuff like that, that involves with TV. But with radio, it's a very simple medium. But the difference between a good radio show and a bad one is 
is enormous. And so I would say, especially because I think I noticed it the most too, because radio was the first thing I really got into. I did, you know, writing and some um, digital videos and online stuff, but it was, you know, really small audiences. And so getting the job as the update anchor on ESPN 1000 and then working my way into hosting uh, was the earliest part of my, you know, meaningful sports career. Mm-hmm. And so I just think understanding how to prep, understanding how much you need to know, how to create a community, how to engage um, and present the information in interesting ways. Uh, that probably for me is now I look back and think, okay, there's a big difference between what you're doing now and how you started. Which of those platforms do you think, and this is not is which is your favorite, but which one do you think has been the greatest reward? Uh, well, I'm going to say the one that first popped into my head um, as my gut, and that's and that's television because um, doing something like Around the Horn, which has been on forever and is extremely respected, super fun but also informative, a great place to talk about serious issues and to have you know goofy conversations, and everybody sees it, right? People I know mm-hmm. that don't even care about sports would be like, oh my god, like ESPN was on my TV on my plane when I turned it on, there you were, or I saw you in this bar when I went to lunch, or. Um, And so it's been rewarding in the sense of like people who don't follow sports closely being like, oh, my God, like you you're on TV. Like, wow, that's so cool. (laughs) Um, And also, um, I think, you know, as as an example, like Blazers coach Terry Stotts will come on my radio show and crack a joke about how, you know, if I don't win around the horn that day, it's a reality rig job. And I think (laughs) it gives me some uh, some credibility, right? There's a lot of athletes Mm -hmm. and coaches who know who I am because they've seen me on that show and respect what I have to say. And then they want to come on my radio show or I see them out at events and they'll say, I know who you are, you know, like, uh, Ghostface Caleb from Wu-Tang comes up to me at the all-star weekend, like, yo, I totally F with you. Like you're the best, you know? And (laughs) Mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a lot of reward in that, I think in feeling like I've earned my stripes. Um, but I also think the podcast, because I get to talk to anybody I find interesting and I don't limit it to sports. I've had neuroscientists and sommeliers and journalists and athletes and musicians. And it's so rewarding because it's the perfect way for a curious is a good word. Nosy is another one uh, person <laughs> to get to pick the brain of literally anyone. And like, how did you get to where you are and who are you and what do you love about it? And um, what are your secrets? And and tell me about this show that you did that I loved so much. And now I get to hear behind the scenes. And um, so that's been super rewarding because it's 100% me. Like I do have a producer and he's great, but like I decide who to book. I book them. I, I come up with all my questions. I, I engage with them and I create relationships. And, you know, like Glennon Doyle, who I had on is going to come on the ESPNW summit with her wife, Abby Wambach, who I also know from podcasts and radio stuff. And I feel like I have a relationship with them now, even though we're like not hanging out. And so that's super rewarding too, is to get to talk to people that I just really admire. I just read Glennon Doyle's book on Tame. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's literally, I don't winning again. I need to bring a highlighter this time and like, just write things down the whole time. I'm like, Oh, remember this. <laughs> it's, it really is true. And I don't want to sound cliche, but it is somewhat life-changing. Yeah. It really just, it's, it's so incredible. So yeah. glad you, glad you brought her up and made me think maybe I should have her on this podcast, even if she's not in sports, that's okay. Well, not if she's not, but even though she's not in sports, uh, I think that would be great. She is uh, now technically because she that's true. and Abby are two of the investors in that new Angel City FC NWSL team in LA. So she is now a part of the soccer, as she calls it. The soccer. You know what? I would love to have her to talk about the soccer. That's all the motivation I needed. Thank you very much. That'll be something I'm working on next. There you um, go. 
You know, you talked about Around the Horn and TV, and that brings up a segment from several months back, of course. Um, but you and Mina Kimes, who's been on this podcast, uh, one of our very early guests, actually, and Katie Nolan, and the segment that I know wasn't planned, uh, where it became the joke about, well, I have a lot of male friends, <laughs> and that that whole thing. And, and I'd love for you to talk about that, because I think, you know, we as women in this industry... I've been on many things where the the comments are all about, well, the girl said this and the girl said that. And well, the girl has a name, and, but I guess that doesn't <laughs> matter. Um, so I would just love for you to talk a little bit about that because it's something we deal with a lot in this industry and I'm sure something you've been dealing with a long time in this industry. Yeah, that's uh, I love HQ because it's the same. It's like sometimes you're getting into deep conversations. Uh, the other day we were talking about what it feels like to get hit in the groin or uh, have period <laughs> cramps. Like it really go, it really uh, c- covers all the bases. Yeah. So uh, Dan Levitard is awesome because he recognizes mm-hmm. and is empathetic about and cares about the differences in the experiences for the women in this industry. And I think having a handful of women that are kind of regularly in his orbit around the radio show and around Highly Questionable have has brought that even more into, into high definition for him. And so because of that, he is willing to play sort of the game, which is to say that that day, um, for whatever reason, I can't remember the very first comment, but I think so between Mina and Katie and, and, and me and a bunch of others, like we've all had these conversations with other women about, and even some very specific conversations in like a Twitter group DM session about, you know, criticism over the sound of our voice or, um, what we're dressing like or how we're talking or what are, what earrings we chose, like the dumbest things. And so I think there was just one comment and it sort of triggered the same thing in all of our heads. I think when we hear the word shrill, um, mm-hmm. we, we all go to the same place, which is that's a talking point of people. Uh, that's how nagging shrill sounds like my wife, you know, and, and the, the way that you describe a woman in a situation that has absolutely nothing to do with any of those things. But once you hear a woman's voice, that's where your brain goes, which tells us exactly how you feel about women and where they belong and everything else. So I think Katie might've mentioned something about being shrill. And then we all, without even acknowledging it or like needing to say anything to each other, picked up on it. And then it was, you know, you should smile more. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, I don't have a problem with men, you know, both of my dogs are men, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it was cathartic. And I think the reason, I mean, we had no idea. We thought it was a funny bit and we were cracking up, but then it kind of went viral, the the clip of it on on social. And I think it was this, this just sort of everything that we usually hear turned on its head and the ease with which we kind of flowed from one to the next of, of reacting to it. Uh, and uh, I, I like to do that. I particularly like to be able to point out the things that always come up for women and, and just kind of play off of them instead of just being angry. Uh, Cause you can only be angry for so long. Eventually you start to take the narrative back and, and have fun with it. And then it doesn't affect you anymore. You could say like, it doesn't bother me when you say that because it's not true. And uh, here I am mocking you about it. <laughs> well, and yesterday, at least at the time of recording yesterday, there was a comment on Twitter that was later deleted, but said something about how, how female sports writers could imagine letting anyone take them seriously if on their social media they post bikini pics by the pool. And there was a lot of discussion Mm. about that, and it felt very unfair because we have lives too, and we have social media. We can share our lives. And whether or not I'm in a bathing suit by the pool 
doesn't mean that I know less about what's going on with the 49ers and that I'm not covering the beat correctly. Um, and so I think that's something over the years it's evolved. And here we are in 2020. And one would think that wouldn't still be a, a comment that yeah. someone would think and then tweet. Well, especially um, not a, a, a male sportscaster, right? And I don't right. know anything about him or to what level he's achieved or the, the reach of his audience, but not just some Jamelka off the street, like someone in the yes. business. And I think also worth noting um, two things. One, Meg Linehan, who, who's just a fantastic sports writer and does a great job, especially covering soccer. Uh, the, the guy's actual comment was, uh, you know, now deleted, but it was something like curious. Could you imagine if a woman posted scantily clad photos on social media, people still respecting her? And Meg Linehan wrote, curious, could you ever envision men viewing women's bodies as something not intended for their consumption? Right? So mm-hmm. this idea that, Every time a woman does anything, it's meant to be seen through this male gaze of sexuality. And it's how do I receive this? And what does that make me think about her versus she's living her life and that's the only body she has to live it in. So whatever Mm -hmm. she's doing is not a sexualized act merely because you found it sexy. Um, And also worth noting, there's absolutely no comparison between men and women and the way society views them as beings in terms of what their body says about them and what their clothes say about them. So you can't make the comparison for a man to do that, right? And that's what right. he was asking. If a, if a guy wore scantily, you know, was scantily clad, could, could he expect to be respected? It happens all the time. There's all sorts yeah. of dudes and they get to do funny skits and they get to do funny things with their bodies because they're not immediately sexualized. And we are prevented from doing that. It, it actually handicaps women in comedy all the time because people are not willing to separate their bodies from their sexuality in order to laugh. It's either reflexively that doesn't make her look as attractive as normal. So it makes me uncomfortable that she's willing to make herself less attractive or she is very attractive while doing that. So I'm not finding it funny so much as arousing. Right. It's so it's like mm-hmm, it's. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's, there's absolutely no comparison between the way we see the two. So to argue um, that what would happen for a man or a woman could be compared is to eliminate all context. And so it's, it's a meaningless thought exercise, but also an insulting one. It is. That's perfect. Meaningless and insulting at the yeah. same time, which by the way is yeah. a really impressive. bad combination. Yeah. yeah. Impressive yeah. and just a terrible combination. Um, but the way that you put that is, is so true. And it's just, it's just so interesting. Here we are in 2020, like I said, and like you said, and a male sportscaster, but you know, I think one of the benefits of Twitter and the benefits of social media, social media, excuse me, social media, um, I'm going to start my own encyclopedia brand called Socialpedia, um, is that, you know, Meg was able to respond that way and women were able to defend themselves. And it was since deleted and he apologized, which, and someone unearthed a very similar comment from a couple years ago, so I don't know if I'm going to buy that apology. Oh, I see. Okay, well, that was. A, I'm that. sorry I got caught. Not. A, mm-hmm. I'm sorry that I had a terrible opinion. It's like when people say, "Well, I'm sorry if it hurt your feelings." But <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's I'm sorry everyone reacted so negatively to this thing <laughs> that I said that clearly wasn't the issue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there, 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 there was me trying to give the benefit of the doubt. Oh well. <laughs> Oh, well, um, but I think it, it, you know, does bring up an interesting conversation. You make excellent points around that. Um, kind of in that vein, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, actually, it's not really in that vein in, at all. So I'm just switching subjects. <laughs> but as you see women in coming into the sports industry today, what is a misstep that you see? And maybe it is a little bit in that vein, because I think we can all get very sensitive on social media. So I guess it's a two part question. What's a misstep you see? And then when it comes to social media, how do you advise women to deal with trolls and negative comments like that? So I would say for the missteps, 
It depends on the context so much, right? I, I do think that the first thing is not believing in themselves because it's ingrained in them from a young age or from the interactions with people on social media or from what they've overheard family members saying about the women that they see on TV or anything else. Like it took me such a long time to allow myself to to believe in myself and to see that I could be a part of the industry and I could be right alongside um, these guys that I work with and not feel less than, but it took so long in part because um, as much as I didn't want to, like I sort of subconsciously ingrained the ideas of all the people um, that I was reading and, and seeing and watching and those tiny little microaggressions every single day, kind of undermining the ability of women or the knowledge of women. Um, you got to beat that back and it takes a while. So especially early on, you got to fake it till you make it. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, don't give people the opportunity to weasel in and, and criticize. You can be open with your friends and family about your doubts and everything else, but try to present a pretty confident front, but at the same time, be willing to accept when you don't know something and to say it and to be wrong and to correct yourself and don't be too hard on yourself when you make a mistake. That's another thing that I've learned is I'm not going to know everything all the time. There's just too much going on. And so instead of getting super defensive and upset with myself and uh, overreact, if I make a mistake, just let it roll right off because the very best people in this industry make mistakes and they're confident. So they let it roll right off. And that's easier to do once you have that confidence, but it's, it's a good thing to start practicing early on. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say as far as social media goes, it's really very personal, right? So some days I'm literally muting and blocking behind the scenes. No one ever even knows that I'm getting this barrage of trash. Other mm -hmm. days I'm feeling feisty and I got some time on my hands. And <laughs> my best way of handling it is to clap back and to, to show off their terrible spelling and grammar and to pick examples of terrible and problematic points of view that I see over and over. Pick one of them, use it as an example, retweet it, shout it down, hope that all the people that are kind of silently in the middle that aren't really reacting and commenting, but that are absolutely listening are paying attention. And they see why that's problematic and why that's wrong. They say, okay, I didn't realize that, never thought of it that way. Now I'm, I'm moving forward with a different perspective, right? So I'm not really trying to get whatever trash person who's at the very extremes to change their mind necessarily. That would be great. I just don't know if it's mm -hmm. possible for some of them. Right. It's all the people in the middle. And it's also like whenever people say, stop feeding the trolls or stop wasting your time. Uh, I usually will quote tweet instead of writing it myself or, or copy and paste a section from um, Lindy West in an interview that she did talking about why she sometimes wants to respond. Um, and I'll elaborate and say, you know, for a lot of young women out there, they're getting these messages or they're seeing women get these messages and no response feels like some sort of acceptance. Um, mm -hmm. And this idea that you're supposed to sit and digest it all day and internalize it. And it becomes something you have to deal with instead of the person sending it. I like to give them an example of someone who's confident and powerful and strong and, and is not going to be affected by it and can crack jokes about it or shout them down or prove them wrong or make them look stupid because I think that empowers them to feel the same way if if that kind of trash comes their way. I don't think just silently taking it and and not reminding people that it's happening really serves any purpose. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree because someone asked me yeah. that once. Um, I was doing a ticket giveaway a few years ago and someone made a lovely comment about something I could give away with the tickets that would make Ew. people enter. It was disgusting. And I quote tweeted it and, you know, made a comment because I didn't think I should take it. And um, uh, a male said to me in a nice way, he said, what's the point of even, you know, talking to that person? What's the point of even giving them attention? I said, because people should know this is not okay. 
Like mm-hmm. people should know this happens. And sometimes, sometimes you ignore and sometimes you do have to bring attention to it because it's just not okay behavior. It's harassment. It's um, I didn't want to say it's a microaggression. I think it's just an aggression. It's a, it's a pretty macro. It, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty macro. It's just a yeah. pretty macro aggression. Well, uh, and also so. I, th- I think too, the, the, the idea of like, Oh, there's, you gave them the attention they wanted. Okay, fine. So some sad troll who's probably very dissatisfied with their lives. And that's why they're going around being terrible like that gets a couple seconds of attention, but also all these other people are watching and paying attention and, and realizing what's going on. And for me, that's a little bit more, that's a little bit more worthwhile than worrying about whether that person has attention. I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. So going back to more than mean, um, you've been an advocate for women in our industry. This has obviously been an important cause for you. What inspired you to kind of take that leadership role? Uh, with which? Well, just basically what we've been talking about. And I'm thinking back to more than mean. Uh, oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. The starting back yeah. then, um, not that back then was that long ago, but right. I think in the last several years, this has become obviously a bigger and bigger issue and something that's had a lot more light brought to it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was like one day I was like, I'm going to stop being silent because I've never been silent in my life. I've always been <laughs> someone who like speaks up about stuff. And there's any number of examples of things that I didn't feel were quite right or were unfair that I've um, spoken up about. I've never really been one to shy away from engaging, particularly on issues where people are not allowing women to have the same opportunities or respect or are presuming that they're incapable. Um, I think a lot of that stems from just being like a really active kid and super involved in a ton of stuff and, you know, really tall and athletic when I was young. So it was like, I could beat the boys and everything. Like, what are people mm-hmm. saying about like, what, what do you mean girls can't, you know? And so I sort of got this attitude from a young age that just stayed with me. Um, but I do think I was maybe two years into my job, maybe less than that, even at ESPN 1000 doing the updates. And it was the first time they had a, a, a regular female on uh, in 11 years uh, on a, on a daily show, even just doing updates, certainly not hosting. I don't think they've ever had that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, it was a great feeling to be a part of the industry. It was a great feeling to have people say like, oh, you're the coolest chick. Like you're what a dream girl, you know, let's like, we could get beers and talk sports. Right. I felt like I was being welcomed in a place that isn't always welcome to women. But then very quickly after that, I realized that was less important to me than trying to change the place. Um, mm-hmm. and realize that, you know, if the guys are going to say stuff like throw like a girl or talk, uh, poorly about female athletes or sexualize them, I'm going to turn my mic on and say something. And that's going to mm-hmm. turn some people off. And that was clear, right? There were certainly people who did not want to hear a woman's voice chiming in with the guys while they were having their yucks about women. Um, but it was much more important to me to stand up and to be that voice for women since I was the only one than to make sure everybody liked me. And so that was a really tiny little step there is, you know, like wanting to, to jump in on those conversations. And then it just grew from there where the more agency and voice that I got and the more power I got, the more I wanted to make things different for the people coming up after me. Cause I had to deal with all the stuff that you read about sexual harassment and not being given opportunities and, you know, being treated differently and um, just, you know, all the stuff that scares women out of the industry or, or makes them so um, discouraged that they leave. And I wanted to make it easier for the next person. And so that became super important to me. And so I don't know, fairness has kind of been the thing that has affected me the most in life, whether that's for 
LGBTQ people or people of color, people of any specific religion or women, like just the idea that we're all human beings and we should all get a fair shot. And when things aren't fair, it really bothers me. And so when I looked around and realized that, you know, things were getting a little better, but the bottom's still the same for women, like the ceiling is much higher than it used to be. There's so many more opportunities to, to really rise, but the bottom's still the same. The experiences that women who start in this industry have are the same. Um, then it wasn't really a choice so much as just like, there's some really powerful, talented women and the way that they handle it is by kicking ass and setting an example, but they don't really like to dive into the conversations about it. I am perfectly happy to get into the muck with people about it. And so I feel like you need both kinds. And so I'm willing to be the one that kind of does the, the fist fighting. So along the same lines, you've been very outspoken on issues of racial injustice and on social justice. And like I said in the beginning of the pod, it's been incredibly inspiring. And those are issues that are very important to me. And I think it's been inspiring to see how you've spoken up as an ally and and how passionate you are. And so I was just wondering if that's something that really has been a part of you your entire life. Um, and if you can just talk a little bit about that, because I think it's just important for people to under, to know and understand what a difference it makes when someone speaks up. I would say that I've had the right idea for most of my life, but I was pretty immune to a lot of the major issues in the country for a really long time. I grew up in a super, super predominantly white, super wealthy neighborhood. My parents did their best to take us out of that neighborhood and make sure that we weren't turning into spoiled brats and, you know, go to soup kitchens and go to different, um, places and learn about different cultures. But for the most part, it was really homogenous. And then I went to Cornell, which is more diverse for sure, but still is sort of elite Ivy League place um, where the biggest concerns are academic and intellectual conversations. And um, especially years ago, when I think there was an ability more so for younger generations to be um, apolitical or to not be as invested in politics, now plenty of them were, so it was clearly a choice on my behalf, but I also think a lot of the issues didn't feel like they touched you on an everyday basis, at least me. But again, that's being immune to, to people who are dealing with the way that policy and law and, and everything affect them from the jump. And predominantly people of color, LGBTQ people, people with disabilities, you know, anybody who needs to fight for their everyday abilities to be uh, and rights to be afforded to them uh, didn't have the opportunity to just pass on politics for as long as mm -hmm. I did. Um, mm -hmm. And I think social media has sort of engaged a whole younger generation and started conversations about these things where you can't ignore them the same way as maybe you could if you just weren't someone who picked up a newspaper every day. Um, mm -hmm. so I thought of myself as a very smart person, but I was not particularly informed about a lot of that stuff. I was very busy trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life and, you know, all that stuff. And so, um, I think it wasn't until later, especially I moved out to LA. I was trying to be an actress and a comedian. My, my dream job was, and always will be, uh, being on Saturday night live. And so it was, how do I pay the bills? What classes do I take? Where do I audition? How do I become this person that I want to be? Right. And once I settled into a career and a job and had more time to focus and more uh, stability, I started to really, and I think just also, you know, the changes in the political landscape over the last decade plus um, 
afforded me the, the ability to like get more involved. So I think I've always been an ally in the sense that, like I said, fairness has been super important. Both my parents are lawyers and we would have conversations and the, and the things that we would watch and talk about in our house were thoughtful and intellectual and, and, and meaningful. Um, and so I always thought I was on the right side of them, although I was not informed enough to really be fighting for people in ways that were as meaningful. Um, mm -hmm. and so I also think that there's just something about getting older. I think a lot of people mm -hmm. in their twenties are figuring themselves out and in their thirties are figuring out the rest of the world and their place in it and how they can help others. And not only do you have more time and stability, but you also have more desire to, to affect the world now that you have a better idea of how it works. And so, um, I think the older I get, the more important it is to me to like fight for things and speak up for things that I care about. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we're seeing, and we're seeing how important it is and we're seeing a lot of change. And I think, you know, one thing about this year is as difficult and terrible as a year as it has been, my hope for this year is that we actually are going to see real change. And um, we saw what happened with the NBA in the last several days and how the league is really taking a stand and, and doing action. And that's, I think, what was really cool about what the players did. Um, they took action. Yes, they striked those games and then they came back and said, all right, we're going to play and, and here's what we're going to do. And I would just take a moment, moment to encourage people, post, bring attention to, but also take action. It's really important. Yeah. And I think that's another thing with social media is it allows people to be incredibly informed in some ways. It also allows people to waste a whole bunch of time arguing with other people and doing nothing or feeling mm -hmm. like they've done something because they posted and mistaking action online for action in, in person. And it's something I fall into too, because it's easy to do, right? Like you have a couple minutes, Absolutely. you feel like you've done and said something. And hopefully those posts, especially if you have some influence, do affect people and change their minds or inspire them to action. But there's also any number of small scale to large scale things that you could do in person that are far more effective. And I have to be reminded of that. Like, you know, ESPN has some policies against speaking specifically um, about, you know, politics in quotes, which, um, you know, is very different than social issues or otherwise. But sometimes it does still feel restrictive. And I have to remind myself, not being able to post on social media about it does not prevent me from being active in my community or, or actually doing things um, to help enact change. So uh, I, I do think we sometimes get stuck in a rut thinking that those engagements on, on online are the end all be all. And, and there's so much more that we have to do. Uh, speaking of which, I would love to talk a little about your philanthropic endeavors. Um, we share a very big love of dogs, which That's right. just makes me happy. Um, for those of you who were not on before we started recording, um, I was a minute late because I was feeding my two little rescue dogs. Um, and, and I have so, three dogs lying on the bed with me right now as I record this. Which just <laughs> makes me happy, really. <laughs> um, honestly, it just makes it just makes everything part that of it. much yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would say Cappy and Sadie are totally a part of everything. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about uh, the philanthropic endeavors? Then we're going to get back into some of the career stuff. But I'd love to just kind of hear about, you know, what you've been doing around dogs and generally because you do a lot. Yeah. So we rescued our first dog, Fletch, my husband and I. <gasps> um, Fletch. Fletch, Great yeah. <laughs> about eight or so years ago. And at the time, uh, we were not as crazy. We loved dogs, but we were not full on lunatics yet. But then we realized <laughs> that Fletch is the greatest creation 
ever to grace the universe, uh, animal, <laughs> human, molecule of any kind. Um, and we got weird. And so uh, then we <laughs> then we started, and we also, because we rescued him, we thought, oh my God, how many other amazing, perfect, wonderful fletches are out there that are going to be put down or they're not going to find homes. So then we fostered a dog named Hot, uh, well, he was named Lionel at the time. Oh, and uh, we found a home for him. And then years later, five years later, he came back to us. Uh, the couple broke up. She kept him. Then she had a baby. Then it was hard for her to do both. And yada, yada, yada. Here he is back with us. That was uh, supposed to be about a month or so that we would have him back and find a home. And now it's been about two years. So he's back for good. And he's now named Haji. And Haji, oh. I think it's meant to be. He came to us twice. So he's ours. Um, yes. And in between Haji leaving and then coming back, uh, we fostered a couple other dogs and found them homes. And then Banks. So Banks came. Banks has some behavioral issues. So uh, even if we wanted to get rid of him, we didn't know if we would find someone who would want him. And then also if they would uh, respect some of his issues because he's so sweet and loving that it's easy to kind of get lulled in submission and forget that he's not good with strangers. So okay. he wears a muzzle outside and we have to just be really careful with him. So we kept him. So yeah, we've got three of them. Uh, we cannot add a fourth because they all sleep in bed with us and they all weigh about 60 pounds. So oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't have room for a fourth. Um, but we do always want to try to keep fostering and finding a home and then fostering. So we always have one in the rotation. It's just that when Haji came back and made it three again, uh, we just, we couldn't say no, say goodbye to him. So, um, uh, but, but the two, all the dogs that we've rescued outside of Fletch, our first one who came from anti-cruelty society, we found through, um, a woman that actually works at com, well, it's now NBC sports at Chicago, um, who volunteers at Chicago animal care and, and control. Oh. And, um, we started working with her and this family that runs peace for pits and we fell in love with them. They're an adorable husband and wife. They have three kids and they always have some menagerie of dogs in their house. And they started this dog rescue, just the two of them. And they're amazing. And there's so many dogs that have come through and been saved because of them. So now we always try to focus our efforts most specifically on peace for pits, though we um, are happy to support and engage with all sorts of different dog rescues. But yeah, our dream is to make enough money to build a facility near my parents' place in Michigan that's like 90 minutes away and staff it so that other people are working it full time, but have a big old dog rescue for all the overflow. That is my dream too. Actually, that is my dream is that <laughs> going one day to business together. <laughs> we could definitely do that. I, I was going to say if, but I'm going to say when. Uh, Fangirl is so successful that I've made so much money. I want to do that too. And and so that the dogs would have, in theory, a forever home, even if they didn't get yeah, rescued by a family. Exactly. They would yeah. always be there together. So, okay, great, Sarah. We'll have to keep in touch on this <laughs> because that is definitely um, my dream as well because I have two little ones, one of them who right now is barking because – She's nice. probably like, oh, are, you, are you talking about me? Hi. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, that is definitely my dream. I'd like to have 100 dogs. I have little ones. Mine are little chihuahua mixes. But um, if I could have 100 of them running around, <laughs> totally fine with that. I don't know how Cappy and Sadie would feel about it, but I'd be fine with it. <laughs> um, so switching gears a little, or actually a lot, um, <laughs> I, I'd like to first go back to something you said earlier, how your dream job and still is to be on Saturday Night Live. So how did you end up making the switch? And are you going to continue to try to be on Saturday Night Live? Because I would watch that for sure. 
Um, yes, the, the, the journey will forever be, uh, ongoing. Um, even just to be like in the background of a scene sometime, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, I, I was a three sport athlete in high school and at a band and chorus and all the stuff was always at the same time. Right. And so I wanted to be involved with school plays and things. Um, but it was always at the same time as sports. So I did like talent show two years and, um, you know, try to stay as involved in like creative pursuits as I could. But, uh, when I went to Cornell, I, I was thinking, I, I don't necessarily want to be a theater major. I haven't done it enough. And I don't know if that major is as useful if I change my mind. So it was an English major that allowed me to take a lot of different stuff. I was interested in, including a bunch of stuff in the theater department, but same thing. I was a heptathlete at Cornell. All the sports stuff is the same time as rehearsals and everything for drama and theater. So I took as many classes as I could. And I kind of always thought eventually the the time of my sports will run out. I'm not going to go to the Olympics. I'm not going to go pro. So I'm going to use all this now. And I loved it. Um, and then I'll have the rest of my life to try to pursue the other stuff. So I moved out to LA kind of to do like a, like a, you know, what's the saying, uh, fish or cut bait or something like that. I don't know. Whatever, yeah, you know, like that. Give, give yeah. Put, you know, trial by fire, give it a shot. And if I hate it or I suck, like fail fast and go figure out what I want to do. Don't kind of half ass it in Chicago where I'm like kind of trying, but not really. And I've got all sorts of things to fall back on with my parents there and whatever. So moved to LA and got a job in a restaurant as you're supposed to, right? Cause you can always switch That's shifts with people when you have auditions and, you know, just total cliche. Um, and I loved it, but I had a lot of catching up to do. And a lot of people in the classes with me, um, were just so talented and they had a ton of emotional experiences and lived experiences to pull from. And I just felt a little bit one note in terms of what I had been through in life and had to bring to the table for a lot of it. Um, but I always thought that like my improv and my, and my script reading and everything else was, was above average, right? I I knew where the jokes were and how they should hit but I could explain it to someone and watch them do it. Um, and then I, I went to a TV hosting boot camp, and it was sort of like how to start a show and throw it a break and all the other stuff and hosted a fake Chicago Bears show just to practice. And the teacher <laughs> afterwards was like, oh, you want to get into sports? I was like, oh, not really. You know, there's no, no women in sports. Um, and the couple women are like sidelines reporters or anchors that have to be super serious. And that's just not my style. And she said, oh, well, this just seems really comfortable. Like it's something you should look into. It's like, uh, I never thought about that before. And that's another thing. I never thought about it before because there were so few women that it wasn't something I'd seen enough of to be like, that's a job I could do. I remember like mm-hmm. Summer Sanders on NBA Inside Stuff was the one where I was like, this would be a cool job, right? Um, but my mm-hmm. parents also weren't really into sports. So it's not like they saw my love of the Bulls and Michael Jordan and playing sports and thought like you should work in that, right? Like it, it wasn't mm-hmm. something that occurred to them that much either. So I took a TV sports reporting class at UCLA Extension and it sort of clicked. I was like, oh, this is all the things I like. It's like the performative aspect and the talking and the entertaining mixed in with this lifetime of competing in sports that I've done. Um, got a job at Fox Sports Net, um, which is a precursor to FS1. It was a sort of local stations all over the country um, and started writing for some blogs for free and and kind of dove in and um it kind of made sense like all the things came together and I, I was doing second city the full conservatory at the time brought in all the improv and sort of off the cuff performative stuff and applied it to interviews and and videos i would do about sports and it kind of set me apart i think from people coming out of uh broadcasting school with a very similar vibe i hadn't mm-hmm. done any of that i've learned any of that so i was just kind of making it up as i went but applying all of my improv instead of um straight you know, 
I'm standing in front of USC stadium. And, you know, it was more, <laughs> you know, like I did fake Spain event, like Kenny Maine's main event that was satirical about the NBA, like, you know, going back to asphalt courts because of murdered trees for hardwood, uh, like, you know, just <laughs> stupid, silly stuff. Um, and so that was kind of it. Once, once things started moving and I realized how much more was happening for me, um, by combining the two than when I'd been trying to go straight, um, straight, you know, comedy or acting, uh, I really, I really dove in and, uh, and it's also something that's very much about what, you know, yeah, of course it's who, you know, and it's, it's your look and your presentation and your sense of humor and everything else. But it's also like very much about needing to understand the content. And I, I really liked that because it felt like the longer I lived in LA and the more I understood how you had to like schmooze with people who sucked and were creepy and you know, how much I didn't want to be a part of an industry that was like, you know, casting couch BS. I just wanted to work Mm -hmm. really hard and have it pay off. And what is a criticism that you received early on because your approach was different? So was there anything that you received, either fair or unfair, that helped to shape who you are today? You know what? Unfortunately, I didn't get much criticism. It was like you wouldn't get the gig. And then you'd have to try to figure Mm -hmm. out for yourself why. (laughs) Right. I wish I had gotten more, right? I did one sideline reporting gig for the Big Ten Network. And the one criticism I got that I took to heart was, and, and it was it was something that was really hard to know right off the bat, but um, because you're not engaging in the game the way you would at home, you're forgetting that the people at home are hearing and listening to content throughout. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I hadn't been thinking that. So the starting quarterback went down, backup went in, and when I had my halftime interview with the coach coming off the field, I... I, I, for myself, internalized, in case people watching don't know the name of the backup, I'm going to say you needed the backup quarterback to come in. At, meanwhile, that guy's name has been said a million times on the broadcast because he's in the game, mm-hmm. but I'm not hearing right. that, right? And so mm-hmm. stuff like that, like needing to kind of process. And that was the one time I did it. I didn't do any prep. It was a like I had gotten a gig as a one-off to see if I like wanted to do more sideline. So that was like useful and and, of course – duh right like afterwards you're like duh what am i doing but like i had never done it before and i'd never really done any prep or learned anything it was it was like totally like flying by the seat of my pants um i didn't get a lot of criticism for not being super like quote-unquote polished um okay but maybe they were thinking that um what instead i found was that later especially at espn when i was doing something like sports center what i thought i should be super polished they said we want you to be you like we want you to bring the person that you are on the other things to this. That's what we want. Not some approximation of like what you think it is to be, you know, a, a, a reporter type, you know? And mm-hmm. so the more I'm in this industry, the more I just trust my gut and allow myself to be who I am, which is much more off the cuff and sarcastic and, and witty and, and kind of occasionally caustic than to try to fit into some model. Um, and that I figured out pretty early on, especially with the improv stuff was to bring my strengths instead of trying to copycat somebody else. Now, somebody else might be a super polished, great reporter, and that's where they're going to groove in. Um, but for me, if that was not the best choice. That's interesting. And actually it's interesting too, because really that's what made, has always made sports center work were the personalities and yeah. everyone being, yeah, I mean, to this yeah, day, and then you I get say- some reporters come on that are very buttoned up. And that's, mm-hmm. 
useful and that's, you know, you know, you want to be able to trust them and know that they're unbiased and that they're bringing you, you know, and then there's people that are the opposite of that, that you need to bring the entertainment and everything else. Well, and I think you nailed it with the being you. That's, that's what's going to work. If you're sarcastic and caustic and fun, that's who you should be. And if you're super button butt up and polished, that's who you should be. And that's what will work. Um, and yeah. we talk about that a lot on this po- podcast and being who you are, finding your strengths uh, and being your authentic self and not trying to be something you're not because it just won't work. Yeah. Um, the, I think the fake it till you make it totally works in confidence, but not in terms of faking who you are. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fake it till you make it is confidence. Uh, not, not, uh, especially now. And I find that, like in the last even five or six years, authenticity and transparency are huge because, um, there's so much trickery out there. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and not always in a bad way, but it's like, you see some clip of an athlete and you're like, wow, that's crazy. And then you find out it was an ad, right. Or you see right. some, um, you know, th- there's just, there's a real need for, or you see someone posting about something on their social media and you're like, do they actually use that product? Or are they getting paid for that? Right. And so with so much questioning about what you're really getting, whether it's a facade or, or a true thing, I think people want authenticity. And then also there's so many options. There's so many places to get sports radio or writing or TV that like, instead of saying you're not the story, you're still not the story, but who you are and what you bring to the telling of it is so much more important than it used to be because people have any number of options to choose from. That is a hundred percent true. And that was very well said. Um, (laughs) Somewhat along those lines, how have you seen opportunities grow and change for women? And how do you think we can still improve? Well, like I said before, the bottom is the same, unfortunately, and that's what we need to improve on, right? The harassment, the taking advantage of women that are young in the industry, don't have any power or agency, probably won't stand up in a, in a HR debate with some super powerful dude like that needs to change. The expectation that, that young women are in it for the wrong reasons or don't know their stuff or have to prove themselves has to change because it's so infuriating and, and discouraging early on. When a guy walks in, you assume they know what they're talking about. When a girl walks in, they have to prove that they do. And it affects mm-hmm. how much respect they get and the opportunities they get. All that needs to change. On the other hand, the bottom may be the same. The basement may be the same, but the ceiling is so much higher, right? You're seeing women that can be analysts and play-by-play and color. And, you know, Mina Combs is an NFL analyst on NFL Live right next to Marcus Spears and Dan Orlovsky, right? And I, I could see Mina Combs being in the Monday Night Football booth one day. Um, mm-hmm. You have... Uh, so many more opinionists that are women versus just being the host that sets up opinions from the guys. Um, I just think there's, there's the, the sky's the limit. And there's so, I mean, even just in the time that I've been in the industry, it's changed tremendously. Um, so I think just keep pushing and not only keep pushing by virtue of extremely talented, badass women having the jobs and proving they can be done well, but also people having the conversations around it and pushing people doing the hiring and companies to say, it's not okay. If you don't have diversity anymore, it's not okay to just Mm -hmm. have eight dudes sitting on a set. Like, um, and so I think, you know, those conversations are, are necessary because a lot of things don't change until you shine a light on them and you make people Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And, um, I got no problem making people uncomfortable. (laughs) if That's what it takes. (laughs) Well, I think that's fantastic. And that is, and that's 100% going to be what it takes. Uh, well, before we go to five fun facts, uh, could you take us through a day in the life of Sarah Spain? Oh, I wish I could. Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> they're never the same. Um, but I would say 
Um, so I recently just changed uh, my schedule a little bit, my regular schedule. So what stays the same pretty much every day and the weekdays is radio. Um, I just transitioned from Spain and company, which was six to 9 PM Eastern every night to Spain and Fitz, which is seven to 9 PM Eastern. So I'm done around the same time, but it's an hour shorter, which we're still getting used to. And we're doing digital content, pre-party and after party content that just is on the podcast that you can only get there. Um, so adjusting to a slight time change there, but for the most part, um, depending on the day, I either have TV, a podcast mm -hmm. recording, or nothing before radio. And if I have nothing, then it's usually a time that I'll schedule my workouts, my training, my appointments, whether that's, you know, nails or hair or doctor or whatever. Um, because when you're not done till 8 p.m. at night, you got to shove everything in before the work starts some days. Um, mm -hmm. So if it's, let's say, well, like tomorrow I have a... a, a two podcasts. Um, I have a call with like an aspiring young sportscaster. And then I have my radio show on Wednesday. I've got like a hot Pilates class and, uh, actually some free time during the day before radio Thursday, I have yoga, then TV, then my radio Friday, I have TV, then TV. So it's like totally different every day. Um, just depends on, um, on. I usually do around the horn twice a week, HQ okay. twice a week before the pandemic. Now it's been a little bit different radio every night, um, podcast. I usually record one or two a week, depending on the week. And, um, and then writing for ESPNW is sort of random. It's like a topic comes up or an event comes up and either I'll reach out to them or they'll reach out to me. They'll say, Hey, you want to write on that? Or I'll say, Hey, can I write on this? Um, and so it's a little less regular than it used to be just because of my other demands. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I kind of like it. I never wanted to have a job where I just sat at a desk. And if you asked me where you're going to be on a Tuesday at two in three mm -hmm. months, I'd be able to say, well, I'll be at that desk. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want yeah. that. Yeah. Um, it does occasionally prompt me to have to plan ahead to make sure that I don't blow off the things that are not required, like workouts or meditation or like other things that I should be doing. Um, mm -hmm. because when things, when there's so many moving parts, it's sort of like a Jenga. And if somebody reschedules or moves, I'll bump, I usually bump anything but work. <laughs> and so right. if I always prioritize work, sometimes I'll get really busy and I won't do the other stuff. And, um, I'm trying to find a better way of balancing those. And usually that means I just have to plan really far in advance and look at my schedule and say, how am I going to be able to get the things done so that I can like make time for other stuff that I need to do. Which mentally is important. Yeah, super important. Um, and also is important for my job because unfortunately, you know, uh, some of it is about, you know, how you look. And so I got to keep up with all the BS, the fake lashes and the teeth whitening and the, all the crap. <laughs> the things we do as women. Yeah. yeah <laughs> the things yeah. we, it's a, it's a maintenance program, but yeah. you know, it is what it is. That's it kind of, you know, it is what it is. And I, I, for me, I try to look at it as like, you know what though, these things do make me happy in a way that they're my time. Yeah, absolutely. Like, Listen, everybody wants you know. to look their best and it feels good to take yeah. care of yourself. Um, but you know, it's just an added stressor that men don't have that, you know, I, I like don't do my eyebrows and like somebody notices immediately and I'm like, how the hell 
are you that attuned to what my eyebrows look like that I can't just let it go for one week? <laughs> and also maybe read a book because yeah. my eyebrows, sure, your eyebrows it's shouldn't that be important. that important in someone's life, though yeah. I'm sure they're they're lovely. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. Well, and that's what um, I've said before that does frustrate me is that there's just, there's so little time in life. And so out of principle, I only want to spend so much time doing stuff like getting my lashes done or, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. there's so many books to read. There's so many beautiful places to walk and things to see. There's so many friends to connect with that. Like, I just don't want to be someone who feels like their time is taken up sitting, getting plucked and dyed and whatever. It just like it, I do care what I look like. Of course we all want to feel good, but like what a terrible waste of your life. If that's like the majority of your time is just, trying to keep up with people that are younger and better looking. It's just well, when I, not my jam. When I said when I said read a book, I meant to the person who was Oh, I know, but it reminded eyebrows. me okay. that I'm always thinking like I could be reading a book right now instead of them. Yeah. I do try um I do end up with these like marathon hair appointments. I don't want to disappoint everybody, anybody who's listening right <laughs> now, but my hair is like not natural. So I have extensions. I get the relaxing oh, yeah. I have highlights and so it's Half like of a my marathon. hair is fake. Yeah. And so, yeah, my hair it's like that is just it's very fake in my hair. And so, but those <laughs> days are like, I sometimes they're my most productive days because I'm sitting with my computer in that front of me for hours. That is true. You do have a lot of time like, to kill. <laughs> That's how it, I make myself feel better. I'm like, oh, I just got, I, I got so much done and my hair looks great. I should be in like in a L'Oreal commercial and my hair <laughs> looks amazing. Yeah. Um, but that's how I try to make myself feel better. Um, but some days I do that and, and I'm like, wait, where did that eight hours go? I've done yeah. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what happened? Um, but that is that is very funny. Well, that, I guess, is the nature of the beast, so to speak. Um, all right. We're going to move to five fun facts. Sarah, I don't know if you know this, but um, I love fun facts. And it started because I do it with the 49ers players. And it's kind of an opportunity for them. Um, and kind of what we are talking about earlier, like finding your way to do reporting and that kind of stuff. But it's an opportunity for them to just tell us about themselves and, and fun things about a, about themselves that we wouldn't otherwise know. So cool. we turned it into a segment on this podcast where I ask the same question of everybody every week. So when you're ready, we will go. All right, guys, it is time for five fun facts. Sarah, what is your favorite moment in sports? Oh, that's so mean. Oh, ah. <laughs> uh. Fun facts aren't always nice. They're just fun. <laughs> oh, there's nothing fun about this. I have to give you, I have to give you two. One you moment is the entire decade of the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a moment what that the, was. <laughs> what a moment that entire decade was when Michael Jordan and the Bulls were dominating. And Michael Jordan is truly the reason that I'm in this industry because as much as I love playing sports, uh, he is what got me to like be obsessively watching them. And yeah, so the entire 90s and the Bulls of the 90s were a great moment. Um, (laughs) And then, of course, uh, the Cubs winning the World Series in 2016. Uh, I got to go to every single game of the World Series. I got to be a fan when I wanted to. And I got to also be um, on SportsCenter pre and post game, being the representative of my city and my team and, and what was what we were all feeling. And there's just an incredibly powerful feeling to experiencing something that 
it's been a century in the making and so many people have come and gone and never got to see it. And just how lucky you feel when you're the, the person that gets to be alive and a part of it and at the games and like witnessing it. So that's, that's up there for sure. All right. Those are two very good ones. We for <laughs> sure can allow, we can allow the two. Uh, what is your life motto? Ooh, well, there's, so the one that I often say, it's not really a motto so much as like it encapsulates me as a person, which is, uh, Jack of all trades, master of none, <laughs> which is sort of like, uh, I was a heptathlete, which is literally Jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, but it's also like, you know, I get to do the radio and the TV and the writing and the comedy and the whatever. And, you know, as long as I'm reasonably good at a lot of things, I don't have to master any of them, but I also just have been someone who always wants to be involved with everything. Um, I think my motto, Oh, this is definitely one I should have planned in advance. Um, <laughs> but no, that's the fun about fun facts. That's true. Just- that's true. That's why I don't like to give people, I do the Spanish Inquisition at the end of my pod. I don't like people to know them in advance because then they try to give the answer they want people to hear instead mm-hmm. of what they're, what really comes like out of their gut. Um, that's what's been fun with the players because I can't tell you how many of them will be like, I'm really not that fun. And by fact three, they're yeah. so into it. They're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. and also? <laughs> it's not going to be poetically Good. worded, but um, basically just gratitude. Um, I, I am like nat- naturally and feel very lucky to be very naturally happy and optimistic. And the older I get, the more I realize that that's really a gift and it's not a choice by me. Um, I just was lucky enough to be gifted with a um, positive, optimistic brain chemistry. And mm-hmm. I do practice gratitude. And over the last couple of years, I have intentionally practiced gratitude every day. And it has affected the synapses in my brain because I got really into neuroplasticity and how you can actually change the way your brain works. And if you're constantly mm-hmm. looking to the positive side of things and being grateful for things, it actually changes the way your brain goes in any situation subconsciously before you even have a choice to make, it can direct you towards saying, well, this isn't the worst day to be in traffic because I'm not in a hurry instead of, oh my God, I hate traffic. Um, And your brain just starts going there without you choosing it. And it's a remarkable thing to sort of experience and witness if you work on it hard enough. And so I think just being grateful allows you to, I think what's the saying? Uh, The happiest people don't have the best of everything. They make the best of everything. So I think yes. that's probably my motto. I like that. I like that a lot. What is your go-to workout? <sighs> well, I tore my Achilles in college track and it created an imbalance in my body. And so my kinetic chain is totally jacked and I have two bulging discs. So I'm not allowed to run or jump or do anything that puts my back at it um, where I'm not in complete control. So okay. unfortunately, I'm sort of limited to yoga, hot Pilates, uh, like physical therapy training, um, and spin. So I kind of rotate all those. I would say my favorite is probably my friend Lizzie's power, 75 minutes of power yoga, where she has awesome playlists of different music. And it's a combination of like feeling like athletic feats where you're trying to learn these new poses, um, and challenge yourself athletically. And it's a workout at the same time. So it's like more high end athletic yoga is probably my favorite. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, do you have a go-to coffee order? Yes. It is a no-whip mocha with oat milk. Ooh, that sounds delicious. 
Uh, yeah, I don't really like coffee that much. I like chocolate though. So if you give me some well, cho- a little bit of chocolate in my coffee, then I'll get into it. And unfortunately through the quarantine, I've become addicted. I used to only have like one tall once or twice a week. And then during quarantine, it started to give me a reason just to leave the house and go pick up a coffee in like an outdoor window from somewhere. Fair. And now I am officially addicted. You add chocolate to anything and it would be <laughs> <true>. delicious. <laughs> chocolate um, and caffeine to, in. <laughs> uh, all good. I used to, I actually worked at Fox Sports. Uh, you mentioned Fox Sports that I was an intern there. And then oh, I nice. worked at Fox Sports after and my, my boss. Are you out in LA? Sports. I am. I am out Oh, in LA. so the one on Pico. Yep. That on is the main there. Fox lot. Nice. Uh-huh. Spent many that years there. Actually, in the beginning, in the very beginning, I was in Hollywood. Um, okay. And then we ended up moving to Pico. But it was like my first summer. It was a, a summer in college where I interned at Fox Sports Net. Um, and then once I got back, I think by my like sophomore or junior year, it was over on Pico. Um, nice. And my boss, one of my bosses over there used to say that he felt like you could fry cardboard and serve it with ranch and it would be delicious. And I felt like you could cover cardboard in chocolate and put peanut butter on top of it and it would probably be fine. So <laughs> yeah, that was the it's long-winded dark. way to say that. <laughs> but uh, yes. chocolate, caffeine, great combination. And okay, our last but not least, a book every woman should read. Ooh, I mean, I don't want to go prisoner of the moment and go with Untamed by Glennon Doyle because that is what's popping into my head. But that is very prisoner of the moment. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's another one. I mean, I love all of the sort of vignette style biographies of like, you know, Mindy Kaling and Amy Colt Mm -hmm. Puller and Tina Fey. Those are all amazing. A book that every woman should read. Yeah, I'm just going to go prisoner of the moment and go with Untamed right now because that's the one that's sitting at the top of my head. It's a fantastic book, and I actually do think it is a book that every woman should read. So, <laughs> so, so you get a you get a pass, you get a thumbs up, you get something. A gold Thank star. you. All right, <laughs> you get all the You get to be on the Get star. My Job podcast. That's what you get. Love um, a gold star. <laughs> well, gold stars it is. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much. This was really fun. It was super fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And for everybody listening, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Fangirl Sports Network. And I'll talk to everybody next week. Bye, all Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.